Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm Jared Bremmett, audio engineer and editor, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. This is a message that Rob delivered at World Outreach Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. As always, we'd like to invite you to visit robertjmorgan.com, where you'll find Rob's blog post, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Now, for our offertory prayer tonight, we have a lot of things going on in our nation, and we look around with despair, except that we don't have despair because of what the Bible says about the providential hand of God working everything to accomplish his purposes. So we trust in him. But if it weren't for that, we would be in utter despair when we look at the world and this nation. But the Bible says that the church is to be a house of prayer for all nations. So we just want to spend some time tonight praying. And would you stand with me as we go to the Lord together? Our almighty God and our heavenly Father, you have said to us in the Bible, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. So Lord, remind us tonight to set our hearts and minds on things above where Christ is seated on the throne. We believe that one day every tongue and every knee will proclaim that you are Christ. We believe that human history is moving along a pre-appointed path towards your great consummation and that what you have in store for us is the second coming and eternal life and heaven and new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. And Lord, we are eager for all of that. But for now, we know that you want us to look around and pray. And in this country, Lord, there is anti-Semitism, there is atheism and secularism. There are wicked ideas and philosophies being taught in our colleges and universities and communicated over social media. And Lord, we are a nation that needs a touch of grace, a nation that needs an awakening. And so we pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would move on college campuses, on military bases, and the state capitals of all 50 of our states and in churches across our nation. We pray that you would send us, Lord, a revival and give to our leaders the wisdom to make wise decisions. Give the leaders of Israel tonight the wisdom to make wise decisions. And Father, we pray for your persecuted church, always heavy on our hearts. We pray that you would sustain those who are in any way being oppressed. And may your church grow, spread, even in areas of persecution. May there be a great advance of the kingdom of God into the hearts and lives of men and women and boys and girls. And may the outreach of this church 
through all of its different media and individuals. Lord, may that outreach reach all around the world with men and women and boys and girls coming to Jesus Christ. And we make this our prayer tonight in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So there is coming a great man of evil called the Antichrist. And he is talked about in the Bible over and over again. You can find him portrayed in the book of Daniel. You can find him in some of the other prophets. He certainly is referred to by Jesus in that Olivet Discourse about the signs of the times and the end of the age in Matthew 24 and 25. The Apostle Paul described him at some length in 2 Thessalonians, especially in chapter 2. And the book of Revelation talks about him and describes what he's going to be like and what he's going to do, particularly in Revelation chapter 12 and 13. So he is coming. Now, I don't know when is this man of lawlessness who will take the nations and the armies of the world and bring them against Israel in one last great attempt to wipe out the Jewish race. Is he alive right now? Is he somewhere in the world? Is he working his way up the ranks of power? Is he in some university being matriculated with some of this evil philosophy? Or is he 50 years away? Or 100 years away? I don't know. But I do know that there are many antichrists among us right now. And I know that on the basis of 1 John chapter 2. And it's a very intriguing passage, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, or you have the scripture also on your page. If you are watching online, thank you for joining in tonight, and if you have a Bible, I'll be reading from 1 John, which is near the end of the Bible, the book of 1 John, chapter 2, and I'll begin here with verse 18, read through verse 23, and then we'll break it down. Dear children... This is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So what did John mean here? This is a sort of intriguing passage. Well, remember the word antichrist really literally just means anti-Jesus, anti-Christian, anti-church. And John is saying there are a lot of people in the world right now one day the ultimate antichrist will come, but right now there are a lot of people who are anti-Jesus, anti-Christ, anti-Christian, anti-church, and he is warning us about them and reassuring us 
that we really do have an anointing, that we are God's own people through our Lord Jesus. So that's the great point here. He begins by saying, dear children, this is the last hour. I think John thought Jesus would come at any moment. And that's been the attitude of Christians throughout every generation of Christian history. We are waiting for him to come at any moment. And John knew that one of the signs of our Lord's imminent return was the appearing of the Antichrist. So he says there are already forerunners or precursors of the Antichrist on their way. Now, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a month ago, I said a little something about the background of 1 John. So I want to go back and deal with that a little bit more because I think we have to really understand the book of 1 John, this little epistle with five chapters. We need to understand why John wrote it. So this is what scholars believe. This is what a good commentary would tell you. That John, the apostle, who was the disciple whom Jesus loved, he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Many people thought emotionally he was closer to Christ than anybody else. And he would follow Christ. He was a bright young man. And he followed the Lord Jesus, became a disciple. And then after Jesus rose again, then John, along with the other disciples, went taking the gospel in many different places. Every one of the other 12 disciples were destroyed by martyrdom. But John somehow lived to old age, and we believe that he died a natural death. Well, his latter years were spent, according to everything that we know by very, very good sources, in the city of Ephesus, which today is in western Turkey, and he was overseeing the churches in those areas. Well, he had read the, the three Gospels by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He said that, sorry, wardrobe malfunction. There, my eyeglasses got in the way. He said that he had read what Matthew said, and Matthew, the tax collector, had written his gospel, and he wrote a marvelous story of Jesus, every word of it true, and Mark came along, and he wrote a gospel, and most people believe that he worked with Peter, and he took Peter's recollections of Jesus and made his gospel out of that. It was in some ways the gospel of Peter, but Mark wrote it down, and then Luke came, who was a historian. And Luke did a tremendous job of giving us a chronology and details about the life of Jesus that we didn't have in Matthew and Mark. So we had these three Gospels, and John, up in Ephesus now, an old man near the end of the first century, he had read them. And he said, I love these books, but they haven't said everything. And I think the Holy Spirit reserved some things for me to tell in my Gospel such as the rising again of Lazarus. And he said there is an emphasis that they touched on, but I want it to be the primary focus of my book. And so John wrote the fourth gospel. Now, the great emphasis of the gospel of John is that Jesus Christ, the humble carpenter of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, laid in the manger, a peasant of Galilee, actually was and is and always will be the almighty, omniscient, eternal God himself who came as a human. That Jesus was God. And John wanted to make sure that everybody understood that. 
So he made it the great theme of the gospel. We know that in at least five different ways. Number one, he opens and closes his gospel with an emphasis on Jesus being God. He said at the beginning of the gospel, in the beginning was the word, referring to Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Everything was made by him. And without him, nothing was made. He is the creator. And then he went down in verse 14 of John 1, and he said, and the word became flesh and lived among us. He was God who also became a human being so that he could die and rise again for our sins. And he ended the gospel in this way. The climax of the gospel, and as a literary vehicle, comes at the very end of chapter 20, when Thomas, the doubting disciple, sees the risen Christ, and he says, you are my Lord and my God. And so John opens and closes his book by nailing down the fact that Jesus is God. Secondly, John quotes the enemies of Christ as understanding that Jesus was claiming to be God. So in John chapter 5 and verse 18, it says, For this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now this is really easy to understand. If I say I am the son of something, then there's a certain way that we understand that in English. And in the Hebrew culture, if you said, I am a son of someone, then there were two ways of understanding it. It could be you were speaking literally. So Isaac could say, I am the son of Abraham. But that idiom, that phrase in Hebrew could also mean I have all of the characteristics of. So when Jesus called James and John sons of thunder, he didn't mean that they had literally been begotten by thunder. He meant they had all of the characteristics of a stormy personality. When he called himself the son of man, he meant that he had all of the characteristics of humanity. He was a man. When he called himself the son of God, he meant he had all of the characteristics of God, that he was God himself. It was a Hebrew expression that meant having all of the characteristics of. And the Jewish people understood this, so they said when he says he is the son of God, he is making himself equal to God. And to them it was blasphemy. And in chapter 10, verse 33, they said, Jesus said, why do you want to stone me? And they said, we are stoning you for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So not only did John give evidence of the deity or the godness of Christ, but he quoted the Lord's enemies as doing the same thing. And thirdly, John is the one who gives us the great I am statements of Jesus. Now the phrase I am was a Hebrew title for God. It came from Exodus 3 and 4 when Moses appeared before the burning bush and God spoke to him out of the bush. And Moses said, well, if I go to Pharaoh and ask him who sent me, then what shall I say? What is your name? And the Lord said, I am who I am. In other words, I just am always. It's never I was or I will be. I am the self-existing God. 
the only God who was, is, and always will be. So Jesus took this phrase, I am the name of God. And he said, before Abraham was born, I am. And I am the bread that came down from heaven. And I am the light. And I am the good shepherd. And I am, I am, I am. He said it seven times in the gospel. And he was attributing to himself the divine name for God. And fourthly, John shows us many of our Lord's divine qualities are the qualities that made him God. For example, I already quoted in John chapter 1, all things were made through him. He was the creator. And John presented him as being omniscient, knowing all things. Jesus, knowing all things, knew that his time was about to come, John said. And the Lord presents him as being sinless. I find no fault in him. And as possessing glory, intrinsic glory with himself, and having the power to raise the dead, and being worthy of worship. They worshiped him in the Gospel of John, and only God can be worshiped in the biblical faith. And so these different qualities. And finally, John also kept talking about two different worlds. He said there is an invisible world and there is a visible world. There is a world of heaven and a world of earth. There is a world above and a world below. And we're of the world below, but Jesus came down from the world above. And this is our Lord's own language. He says in chapter 3 and verse 31 of John's gospel, the one who comes from above is above all. Referring to himself. He said in John 6, 38, I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He didn't say I was born to do God's will. He said, I have come down from heaven. In other words, I've always existed. I am God, and I came down from heaven. He could have said, through the womb of a virgin, to do the will of him who sent me. He said in John 8, 23, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. So in all of these ways and more, the gospel of John shines a bright spotlight on the fact that Jesus Christ was, is, and always will be nothing less than almighty God. So he put all of that in his gospel. And he began circulating it through the churches of Asia Minor. And not everybody agreed with him in those churches. There was some deserters. There were some people who said, John is too old. He's become senile. He's making things up here. And they began ridiculing those who listened and obeyed John and trusted his word. And they began leaving the churches. And that's what John is referring to here in 1 John 2.18, our text. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us. They were people in the churches but they had some early form of Gnosticism or some kind of Hellenistic philosophy or some kind of low view of Christ. Now John here has a very high view of Christ. The theologians would say he has a very high Christology. But some of the churches, they were not as clear about this. They had a low Christology, a low view of Christ. 
And we don't know exactly what they were saying, but it didn't mirror what John was saying. And John said, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they would have belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So this is why the book of 1 John is so full of assurance. He goes on to say, but you have an anointing one from the truth. And all of you know the truth. Verse 21, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. In other words, he is saying, I'm not writing this to correct you. This isn't one of those letters in which I'm admonishing you and I want you to change. I am here to tell you that you are right and they are wrong. You have the right position. You believe Christ to be who I say he is and who the Old Testament prophet said he was and who the gospel writers said he was. You have an anointing. You are right. I'm writing this to reassure you. But those people that went out from us, they are wrong. So when you need reassurance, that's why this little book is so good. It is placed in the Bible to give us reassurance when we feel intimidated by the world. They send their philosophies against us. We hear them on social media. Young people hear them on TikTok. We hear them on the television. We get the brunt of it in the university classrooms. And it's easy to begin doubting. But you just go to 1 John. And he says over and over again, you have overcome the evil one. You're the ones who know the truth. You're the ones who abide in Christ. You're the ones who know the Father who is in heaven. You're the ones who have eternal life. You have an anointing. They are wrong, but you are right. The Lord Jesus is right, and you are in him. That's the message of this little book. Well, what does all of that have to do with us? I would just say a couple of things. There is confusion in many pews about who Christ is, not in this church. But if you were to go to every church in greater Nashville and ask people in many of these churches, who do you think Christ is? They wouldn't be able to tell you a good theologically accurate answer. I mean, you and I would say he is almighty God who became a human being. He is the God-man who did that to save us. But so many people would say he's a great teacher, he's a rabbi. Or they might say he's my savior, but they don't really know what that means. Lifeway did a study three years ago in which they asked members of evangelical churches, do you believe that Jesus is actually God? And 30% of the people said no. So there's confusion in the, pool, uh, in, the, in the pews, but there is also um, erosion in many pulpits. You can go to a lot of churches in this area and you can sit and listen to sermon after sermon and never hear a clear message about Jesus Christ, not in this church, but in many of the churches out there. I just read an interview, it really was conducted two or three years ago, but I came across it in the New York Times, and the Times was interviewing the lady who is the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York City, connected with Columbia University, and it was for the Easter edition of the paper, and they said, what do you think about Jesus being born of a virgin? She said, that is one of the bizarre claims that some Christians make. They said, do you think that Jesus really rose again? 
She said, well, it's a mystery what happened on that day. I don't really know. I don't think that anybody knows. They said, you think that you have eternal life? She said, what's beyond death is a mystery to all of us. But then she said, but I'm a Christian minister. I mean, there are a lot of, there's just erosion and a lot of pulpits on the very issues that John was articulating in this gospel. But he says, you have an anointing. Look at that in verse 20. Yeah, verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. Now, who's the Holy One? It was Jesus. Because in the Gospel of John, Jesus is called the Holy One of God. The word anointing here is the Greek word charisma. And it means a substance that is poured on you. So John was saying... When you really receive Jesus Christ as Savior, you recognize he is the God of all of eternity who also became a man so that he could die and shed his blood and rise again for you. Then when you receive that into your life and develop a relationship with God, God sends the Holy Spirit into your heart and upon your life and it helps your heart resonate with the truth of Scripture. And I think many, many of us have Uh, experience that and John refers to it several times in this little letter he says in 1 John 3 24 this is how we know that he lives in us we know it by the spirit he gave us and in chapter 4 verse 13 this is how we know that we live in him and he in us he's given us of his spirit so when we receive Christ the Holy Spirit comes upon our life Now, it's very important for us as Christians to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, don't give in to the desires of the flesh, but walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Don't lie to the Holy Spirit. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit. But when you open your Bible, and there is a verse And it just really, it makes sense to you. You say, this verse was in the Bible just for me on this particular day. I needed that verse. It's the Holy Spirit that took your heart into that verse and made it resonate with the truth. This is why it's so important to read the Bible and to say, Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things in your word. That's why when we study the Bible carefully, we begin to see, oh, I see how this works. I see what this means, and the more we see, the more confident we become, the more excited we are, the more our faith grows, and the more we recognize that we are right, and everybody else is wrong. It doesn't mean that we are right about every single thing. It doesn't mean that we are perfect. It doesn't mean that we never make mistakes. It means that when we come to the truth, which is the foundation of our lives, when we base it upon a biblical worldview upon the Judeo-Christian scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, and on the person of Christ, we are right in him because he himself is the truth. And we can be confident in that. So this is what I think John is saying. He says there are a lot of antichrists, a lot of people right now who are anti-Jesus and anti-you, anti-church. And some of them were once members of the churches that you're a part of. But they didn't like the high teaching of Jesus that I gave. 
they wouldn't accept him as God who came as a man, as the God-man who died for us and rose again. And they went out, and they're teaching other people, and they're looking at you and laughing at you and making you feel intimidated and making you feel unsure of yourself. But I am writing to tell you that you are right. You have overcome the evil one. You have an anointing. You are in a relationship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And this is eternal life that you know him. And that's the great message and the purpose of the book of 1 John, to reassure us. Now, let me just give you four takeaways. It means, first of all, that it's important that our lives be committed to Jesus Christ. It's not just a matter of saying a prayer or going through a ritual. It's a matter of really recognizing that God has a plan for me. He created me at just the right time to do something for him in this world. It may be large, it may be small, may be seen by a lot of people, it may be that I'm in obscurity, but God wants to use me in some way and it's going to be purposeful and it's going to be meaningful and it's going to be eternal and I want every part of my life devoted to him. I went to a school for college. I was just back there this past weekend because it was the 100th anniversary of my alma mater, Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. At the time, it was called Columbia Bible College. And I was a young man. I was in a liberal arts school in East Tennessee, but I wasn't very happy there. And the Lord just said to me one night, I want you to go to that school that you've heard about in South Carolina. So I wrote and got an application and put my $25 check with it and sent it back in. And they sent me a letter and said I was accepted. I'd never seen the place, didn't know anybody there. But on September the 2nd, I went down and enrolled in that school, and it was life-changing for me. And the philosophy that this school had been created on is what was called the Victorious Christian Life. And the Victorious Christian Life was a movement and is a movement that says it is possible for Christians to live a defeated life if they let sin seep in and hinder the Holy Spirit's work. But if you come and you give yourself totally to Christ and you repent of your sins and you take every part of your life and you give it to the Lord Jesus Christ and you say whatever it is that you want with me or anything that I am or anything that I have, I am yours then you're acknowledging the Lordship of Christ and he is really free to work with you by the Holy Spirit to give you consistent victory. And I just embrace that. And to this day, I like to wake up every morning and say, dear Lord, I want all there is of me to belong to you. Because it's easy for there to be some habit or some activity or some idea that's in your life and it just isn't pleasing to the Lord and you know it isn't but you don't want to give it up but that will hinder at every point the Lord's ability to really bless you and use you and at some point we have to say Lord I am giving this to you it may not even be a bad thing but it is something that you know is hindering your walk with the Lord. You just have to say, Lord, I'm going to give this to you. And that opens the door to victory in your life. So we have to be committed to Christ. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, 
let him take up his cross daily and follow me and be my disciple. He said, it's possible to gain the whole world, but to lose your own soul. What can you give in exchange for your soul? Nothing is more important than that. And so it's a wonderful point when we come to the Lordship of Christ over every area of our life, every dot, every detail, every cupboard and corner and cubicle in our lives. We say, Lord, I give it to you. That's a wonderful thing because that is the life of full commitment. Now we fail and I have to keep going back and say, Lord, forgive me and giving the Lord something else that he pointed out in my life that may not be pleasing to him. It's a life of continual growth, but it begins when we just say, I'm gonna be committed to Jesus Christ. And secondly, we need to be students of the scripture. These people who deserted were not good students of the Old Testament scriptures or the gospels or the writings of Paul the apostle. John was only saying what other people had said. Paul the Apostle said, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, he was in, Jesus Christ was in the essence of God. He was in essence God, but he also became a man. And Colossians, the book of Colossians is all about the supremacy of Christ above everything. These people who deserted the churches had not been attentive to their Bible study. If they had been, they would have known that every word John had written in his gospel was correct. So we need to be great students of the Bible. Now, I think it's easier to do here in this church than it is in a lot of places because there are so many opportunities and resources to help you. But it all comes to a matter of individual attention to this book as you sit down every day at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day or during the middle of the day and you say, Lord, I want to know this book better. You can never get to the bottom of it. I want to preach all the way through the Bible thoroughly. But that would take 500 years and I don't know that I have that many years left, except that I think I'll still be teaching the Bible by God's grace in heaven. But we can never outstudy his word. And one of the great joys that I have is going through every one of the 66 books and saying, why did God place this book in the Bible? Why didn't he leave out Malachi? There must be something in Malachi for me to learn. There must be a lesson there for me to embrace. And I get into the book of Malachi and absorb that book and read it over and over again and study it and maybe get some commentaries. And I begin to see, oh, I know why the Lord put this book in the Bible. It has a message for me that the other 65 books don't. And it becomes like a part of my treasured collection of truths and the museum of my memory that changes my life. So we've got to be good students of the Bible. Every day have your Bible open. And thirdly, we've got to be defenders of the faith. John here was defending the faith and our faith is under attack by American secularism in this day and age, as you very well know, like it never has been since the beginning of the American Revolution. So we have to be good defenders. And when people say, how can you believe a book like that? We need to be able to say, here's the reason why. We don't have to know all of the answers, but there's a whole area of study that I love to delve into called apologetics, 
which is the defense of the Christian faith. And people have a lot of questions, but here is the thing. We have a lot of answers. And the answers we have are good. We are not just basing our faith upon a fairy tale. We have a faith that is grounded in history. And we can bring the disciplines of all of the different areas of academia to bear upon it. We have archaeology. It's amazing the finds that have been recently discovered in Israel that verify the historicity of the Bible. We have evidence for the resurrection. We have evidence for the existence of Christ. We have extra-biblical evidence in so many areas. We have scientific evidence when it comes to the complexity and the existence of the creation, which cannot be explained by anything else other than an intelligent designer. We have evidence of the changed lives that occur when the gospel penetrates any society. Society. We have the evidence of all of the good that Christianity has done through the ages. We have a book here that we can trust and depend upon, and we can defend it to others with integrity. So we just need to keep growing and reading and studying in those areas. And let me say this also parenthetically. When you study the way the New Testament, the whole Bible really, but let's say the New Testament is arranged. It's a marvel. I mean, you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that give us the history of Jesus, and then the book of Acts, they give us the history of the early church. Then you have 13 letters by Paul, and he gives us the unfolding truth and implications and theology that makes sense of the history. For example, we know from the Gospels that Jesus died, but we know from Romans that that death results in our being justified by grace and through faith. And we know from those letters how to live. So Paul in his letters gives us the theology and the implications for our lifestyle of what we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. And then we have, after that, the general epistles written by various people. And the five last general epistles are 2 Timothy, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. And then we have the crowning book of the Bible about the future revelation. Well, do you realize what you have are the facts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, the implications, the theology, and the teaching. And then, in those general epistles, especially those five books that immediately precede the book of Revelation, you have a five-fold emphasis to defend the faith. Second Peter chapter 2 talks about how there's going to come many heretical teachers, and we've got to stand against them and oppose them and teach the truth. And then John deals with it here. The whole book is written against this backdrop. And in 2 John, he talks about the traveling teachers. You have to be careful about that. In 3 John, he talks about traveling teachers that are true, and you need to embrace those. And then the whole purpose of the book of Jude is to tell us that we must be zealous to guard for the faith, to defend the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. 
and he warns us against the false teachers. So the last five general epistles before the book of Revelation all say, defend the faith, watch out for errors, oppose those who oppose the gospel, and it tells us to be good defenders. Isn't that amazing how you have the facts, the theology and the implications, and then warnings about error, and then the Lord completes everything with the book of Revelation. It's marvelously amazingly put together so we've got to be committed we've got to be students we've got to be defenders and finally we've just got to be confident I mean the devil is trying to intimidate us but he has a hard time doing anything with confident Christians who have a firm faith in Jesus Christ I want to tell you in conclusion here about a philosopher that maybe you read in high school or college. He was very popular when I was in high school and college, Albert Camus, Albert Camus. He grew up in North Africa, went to Paris. During World War II, he fought with the French resistance against the Nazis. And after the war, he settled down in Paris and became a very popular writer and philosopher. And everybody was reading his books. Now, where I went to school at Columbia, Bible college, we were reading Francis Schaeffer, but you know, the Christian writer but, and philosopher, but at most of the secular colleges, even in the high schools, they were reading Camus. Albert Camus was the great writer, and his whole philosophy was dubbed absurdism. He said, everything is absurd. Nothing makes sense. There is no God. And since there is no God, there is no meaning to anything. So life is just absurd. And that was his message, really, in a nutshell. But he was a good writer, and he wrote and wrote and wrote, and it's just life is absurd. And then when he was in his 40s, he was killed in a car crash. Well, years later... There was a Methodist minister who published a book. And I have the book. I'm reading it now. Haven't gotten to the end of it, but it's very interesting. The man's name was Howard Mumma, M-U-M-M-A. He was an American Methodist preacher, but he would go to Paris and preach during the summers. And one day, now, this man, Pastor Mumma, wrote this book when he was 90 years old to give recollections of his life and to tell stories that had not been told before. And he wanted to make sure that before he died, he told this story. He said, I preached every summer in Paris and one summer I was there looking out and who should come into the church? But Albert Camus, I recognized him. Everybody recognized him. And he sat and listened through the sermon and afterwards I said, Mr. Camus, I'm surprised to see you here. Well, I wanted to learn a little something about Christianity, he said. And those two men began meeting regularly. Albert Camus kept coming to church week after week after week. He began reading his Bible. He admitted to Pastor Muma that he wasn't satisfied with his own philosophy, even though millions of people were embracing it, that it... He couldn't live with the implications of it, intellectually or psychologically. And Pastor Muma very gradually continued teaching him the Bible. And one day, Albert Camus said, that's 
what I want, I'm ready to commit to it. And a week later, he was killed in the car wreck. And Pastor Muma never knew whether he had really been saved or not, but he did know that he had come to the end of his philosophy, found it worth nothing, and saw something in Christianity that he needed and saw something in Jesus Christ that he wanted and longed for. Now, you don't read that in the biographies of Albert Camus. But in this one very interesting book, the Methodist preacher gives us the whole story. People cannot live with the implications of an empty philosophy. They can only live a life that is meaningful and full in the full richness of Jesus Christ and the truth of his word. This is the firm foundation. There is no other book. It could be there's someone here and you'd like to receive Jesus Christ as your savior. You'd like to commit yourself to him. Or you're watching online and you say, that is what I need. My life feels absurd right now and I need the truth of Jesus. Well, the Bible teaches that we are all sinners, that sin results in death, but that God loved us and sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to give us forgiveness, and to bring us into a relationship with him. And if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we can be saved. And when you are saved... It means you're saved from death, you're saved from fear, you're saved from all that the devil wants to do to you, and you are going to heaven forever, and on your way there, you've got a song. So if you would like to make that decision, you can bow down wherever you are in your home or by your bed or by your sofa. Just sincerely ask Jesus tonight to come into your life and to change your life and if you're here in this room or one of the other auditoriums, you can do the same. Or we'll have people here at the front who will be glad to pray with you and counsel you or answer any questions we have. Let's keep our hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Will you stand for our benediction? And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, equip us with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company, Clearly Media. Audio editing and engineering is done by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and posts them as blogs on my website at robertjmorgan.com where you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thank you for tuning in, and may God be with you until we meet again.